So bats have the highest LQ. They live the longest of all mammals given their body size. And it's not just one, it's the majority of species. And approximately one in five of every living mammal on this planet is a bat. We have about close to 1,500 bat species that we can look at to understand what they're doing. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, how to live a longer, healthier life. We produce by InstaTracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Emma Telling. Dr. Emma Telling is an international leader in the cross-cutting field of mammalian phylogenetics and comparative genomic. Dr. Telling has particular expertise in bat biology. Since she established uh, the Laboratory of Molecular Evolution and Mammalian Phylogenetics and is a founding director of the Genome Consortium BAT1K and the full professor of zoology at the University of, of College of Dublin. Dr. Tilling has also been awarded a numerous prestigious personal grants. Thank you so much for being here today, Lima. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be invited to come and speak to you and to talk about cool animals that bats actually are. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, very exciting for us as well, and we'd love to learn uh, a lot about this uh, creature, but a lot of us are really scared to, <laughs> to see, but uh, apparently you really like, and uh, apparently there is a lot to, uh, to learn about them, both for longevity and also for the immune system, and we'll uh, touch all of that later. Yes. But I would like to start with a, a brief introduction of what led you to become a scientist and how did you become uh, interested in uh, studying the bat genome? Well, I have to say, I, I think you're actually born a scientist. I think you're born with this innate curiosity that you want to look at the natural world and ask, why is it that way? Can I find a pattern in nature that allows me to underst understand why things are the way they are and how things are going to change? And I think from a little girl, I was always very, very interested in science, interested in biology, trying to understand and look at different parts of life. Why is the tree like a tree? Why is a dog a dog? Why are we different? How are we the same? And even though my family are involved in the whiskey business, um, I was still very interested. I was the dark sheep of the family and the one that was very, very interested in science, particularly biology and zoology. And I did an undergraduate degree in zoology in University College Dublin, master's in animal behavior. And then I realized that if I really wanted to understand how life evolved, how things changed, how the world interacts together, I was going to have to start looking at genomes and genetics because that is the underlying rules to how the world actually works. And so I did a, a PhD in molecular phylogenetics. So trying to sequence genes, align them all up, and work out which species are more closely related to each other, given their similarity in the ATCs and Gs at different sites. And this was a very new field about 
I'm going to give you my age, about 25, 30 years ago. Um, and this is the research that we got involved in. And my PhD project was to look at the evolution of echolocation and slight in mammals. And of course, the echolocating flying mammals are the wonderful bats. And my interest in bats started from an interest in trying to uncover the evolutionary history of mammals and where humans fell within the tree and trying to establish when did flight evolve and how did echolocation evolve. But while answering these questions, I became very aware of the fact that bats don't age the way that they should age. For such a small, the smallest mammals in the entire world are actually bats, these little bumblebee bats. But bats can live for an extraordinary long time given their body size. And the question is, how are they doing this? How are they defying these rules that nature have about how things age? And also, the other thing that intrigued me was that bats can carry out of these different types of viruses without getting sick. And so my research in science, I was a, a, a born a scientist. I got into bats by accident. Um, I realized that bats are these very, very unique traits. And then I was firmly convinced that if we could look at the DNA that bats have evolved to allow them to have these unique traits, we could then somehow take that information and make it of use for ourselves. Because we all share the same DNA code. It's transcribed, translates the same way. So if we could look at the genes that bats have modified and changed to allow them to live way longer than expected given their body size, to slow down cancer, and to live with all of these different viruses without getting sick, then we could modulate ourselves in the same way. So that's why Excellent. I'm here. That, that, that's a great uh, uh, introduction to our discussion. And uh, I would like now to start from the beginning right? and uh, try to understand and also set the stage for our audience. Yes. And uh, so you mentioned in your introduction that the uh, bat live much longer than they are expected to live. So I would like maybe to touch that. And also, if you compare bat to human in longevity, but also in genome, how do you, if you look at the bat genome versus the human genome, what is different between human and bats? Okay. So to start off with first, you know, how long do bats live for and, and what's unique about them in relation to their, 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 their lifespan? So typically in nature, there's this nearly a law or a pattern. You can predict how long a species will live for given their body size for the majority of species. And indeed, what you can do is you can look at the size of a species and work out how long their maximum lifespan should be given their, their body size. And what you'll find is that small things live fast, die young. Big things live slow, live long. Think of bowhead whales living over 220 years. Think of shrews living maybe no longer than six months. But bats are unique because they book this trend. So some of the smallest mammals in the entire world are bats. Yet bats can live way longer than expected given their body size. And there was a study done by Steve Ousted, and this really was intrigued me and, and, and pushed this research forward. And there was a study done where they looked at body size in relation to maximum longevity for over about 600 different mammals. And what they found was that when they did this analysis, you'll have some, you had the longevity quotient, which was, again, typically how long things for a given body size. Uh, divided by, um, so it would be expected lifespan given body size divided by actual lifespan, this ratio. And typically the correlate that you have a ratio of one. 
but bats bucked this trend. Indeed, they were living up to 10 times longer than expected given their body size. And these were um, the bats that they had looked at in this, this paper, this original paper in 2010. And this paper found that there were 19 species of mammal that live longer than humans given body size. 18 of these are bats. And one, the other one was a naked mole rat. And we know how intriguing they all are. Um, but as, so, so as we have been studying and looking at these micro capture projects, so you, the way you age a bat, you catch a bat as a baby and the finger bones aren't fused. You put on a little microchip, you release this bat, you capture it again and you scan it. And you'll say, well, all right, this individual was born in 2010. It's now 2020. That's 10 years of age. So lots more micro capture projects have been happening, have been recorded. Indeed, there's way more than 19 species or 18 species of bat that live longer than humans. The number keeps going up. So bats seem to have booked this trend. Now, the bat that holds the record for living the longest is a species called Myotis brantii. And there was a male bat caught as an adult, ringed in Siberia, released. It was caught 41 years later. This is what's published. I believe they found older individuals now um, with little to no signs of aging. So no signs of aging. 41 years later, as an adult, could have been 10, could have been two. You don't know how old they were. You can't age them. Um, but what's remarkable about this is that this species can weigh no more than a third of a lab mouse. So they're very, very light. So they should not be able to do this. And if you were to correct for body size and work out the predicted ratio, it would be like saying that this species can live for the equivalent of 250 human years, correcting for body size give or take, large error bars. But what this means is that bats have found ways to slow down the aging process. And it's not just one species, it's the majority of them. You do find some species are living as long as expected given their body size. So this would be the likes of Molossus molossus. But the genus of bat that holds for maximum longevity are these myotis bats, the bats that I was studying. So the question is, what do bats do to slow down this expected aging? How do they have these extended health spans? And it's not just one, it's many, many of them. And potentially the way to address this is to look within the genome. And indeed, it is one cool way of looking at what bats have evolved. And you ask the question, what's the difference between a bat genome and a human genome? We have the same amount of genes, give or take. So human genes, bat genes, very similar, both mammals. Their genomes are smaller than ours. So their genome would be 2GB, ours are typically 3GB. So we've got more, more maybe noise within our genome, the more parts of our genome that we can't account for. But something that I find intriguing is why are our bat genomes so small? What's going on? And they seem to have the small mammalian genome size. So all of the genes required to make a functional mammal, you'll find in the bats, but it might be at the lower, lower limit. So they're very similar genomes. Um, we have the same genes. There's humans have lost some, gained some. You see this across different species, but they're quite similar. In terms of aging, bats are living way longer than us given their body size. So I think the human LQ is about four. Um, our bat LQ, or is it, it's, I think it's 3.8 or four. I'd have to go look at, look again at where we're at. But bats are still higher than that. So they're up to, they potentially could be up to eight. So they're doing something a hell of a lot better than us without any medical treatment, without any intervention, living in the wild, facing all their predators. Um, 
And so therefore studying bats might help us understand what we can do. Excellent. Couple of comments. So Steve Astad was a, a guest on this uh, podcast in the yeah. past. And he, he, he wrote an amazing book that I really like, that maybe you can see it behind me. And uh, it's called Metu Senach Zu. Yes, uh, I have it the, here somewhere too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I really recommend everyone that is interested yeah. in uh, learning more about how uh, uh, the evolution, uh, what can we learn from evolution about our longevity? That's a great uh, book. Also, Vera Gordonova that uh, studied the naked mole rat, I used to be a guest in this podcast as well. So I also okay. recommend uh, anyone that is interested in that. And it's also a fascinating ritual to come and listen to that uh, episode. So I uh, thank you so much for that. J- just to explain the ratio a bit, uh, again, uh, for me to someone that is not a scientist. So high level, what uh, Steve Astor done is uh, look at the, all the creatures and basically look at the body mass and basically look at the longevity and try to find uh, what is happening. And uh, what he found that there is a nice uh, regression line or a nice uh, correlation between your weight and the longevity that you have. So you are bigger, you live longer. You are smaller, you live shorter. But what he found, uh, as uh, Emma said, that uh, for example, for human, we were supposed to live four times shorter than our weight. And uh, for bats, as you said, some of them even live 10 times longer than uh, their weight. And uh, there are some other creatures that even uh, live uh, 20 times, but they are not mammals. So yes. bats is the longest lived mammals. And uh, so far, am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. I think we're supposed to live four times longer than our body weight. And that's with all of our medical interventions. I'm told that the bats have the highest LQ. They live the longest of all mammals given their body size. And it's not just one, it's the majority of species. And approximately one in five of every living mammal on this planet is a bat. We have about close to 1,500 bat species that we can look at to understand what they're doing. Excellent. So my next question is the uh, related to LQ, and again, it's the ratio between the weight and the longevity. Is it still valid inside the family of bats? And my question is, if you have a bat that is uh, bigger, it lives longer than a bat that is smaller, or it doesn't uh, stay intact in the, inside the bat family? It doesn't stay intact inside the bat family. <laughs> so you'll find the really big bats are not living way longer. Uh, not li- in terms of chronological age, just say looking yes. at, right, they, they will live. So the, the bats that are holding the record, the ones that are living over 40 years are some of the smallest. Um, the big ones are kind of in between. Now, the problem with all of this is that we have to take a lot of this with a pinch of salt because our aging information on bats is only as good as our micro capture projects. And if you think about it, the majority of these micro capture projects where you catch a bat as a baby or as an adult and you put on a ring or a microchip, now everybody microchips, and you release it and you catch it again a number of years later, you know that individual is at least the age plus one um, of when you caught it. So you know it's least. So if I caught it as a baby, 2010, catch it in 2020, it's 10 years of age. I catch it as a, an adult in 2010, catch it in 2020. It's at least 11 plus. So you know it had to be at least one year, one year of age. The finger bones are fused. So a lot of the work that was done on these micro capture projects were in places in temperate parts of the world. 
Uh, they were done in Germany. They were done in Europe. They're done. There's this fantastic long-term market capture project run by Roger Ransom in the UK on these long-lived greater horseshoe bats that he himself has been catching them, studying them and ringing them for 60 years. And so again, that this any type of wildlife data, you have to have this commitment for people to keep the projects going year after year after year after year. And so we have, a lot of this information comes from temperate parts of the world. There wasn't that much ringing work done on, on these um, large, large neotropical bats or large world, old world bats. So we're, we're playing catch up on that. Now, there's a new way of potentially aging bats. And this is using the DNA methylation clock. Um, I suppose this new methylation, universal methylation chip that was designed by Steve Horvath. And we have actually been starting to use that to age bats because indeed we've been able to work that bats are aging. So you can look at a methylation clock and give or take the very long lived bats and the very short lived bats are doing things slightly different. The majority of bats the methylation clock is ticking at a similar rate. So we can use that to age them. Now, when we do do that, you still find that these little, really, some of these very, very small bats are still bucking the trend. They're living way longer than expected. So you don't see that nice regression line inside the order. To answer your question. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a very good answer. And uh, uh, related to that, maybe we are still in the background of uh, bats comparing to humans. So I, I would love to learn more about their uh, uh, sleeping habits, eating habits, and so on, uh, just for our audience that doesn't know a lot about bats. Okay, this is my favorite part, telling you really about the biology of bats. Well, so the majority of bats are nocturnal, which means they come out at night. And they feed in a whole diversity of food. But again, the majority of bats are insectivorous. So they fly in the wing, they use their echolocation to eat insects and arthropods. But you then have families of bats that feed on fruit, feed on nectar, feed on pollen. You have other bats that actually can catch fish. They use their echolocation to see the fins of the fish as they breach the water, have great big, huge claws, swoop down, and they catch up the fish in the claws and their tail membrane, bite them, big pouches they put the fish in, you have the fish catching bats. You have this family of phylostomids, these neotropical bats, which are extraordinary diversity. These are the ones that have some of the longest tongue of all mammals because they feed on these nectar plants. You have the vampires, three species of bats that do feed on blood. Um, again, don't worry, they're living in, in, in South America and there's only three of them. You have bats that feed on plants, bats that are major pollinators of plants, bats that feed on fruit, feed on insects, bats that feed on small mammals and other birds. So they eat a whole diversity. They're found throughout the entire globe. There's 21 families, but again, the majority of species, I think all of them, bar three, are nocturnal. They come out at night. Um, bats can hibernate. So again, in the temperate parts of the world where the winters are cold, these really long-lived bats, again, the Vespertiliana, the Royal Lofid bats, the Myotis bats, and some of these horseshoe bats, they hibernate. Um, and they will be able to decrease their body temperature to go nearly as cold as a fridge. And they stay like that throughout the winter, waking up at a series of arousals. But again, how they do this is extraordinary without showing the level of muscle depletion that would be expected if you don't move for six months. <laughs> 
Um, mm-hmm. They typically have one baby. They'll have one baby, the females. Again, there's close to 1,500 species, so this is generalizing. But typically bats will have one baby. Rarely do they twin, because if you think about it, how can the mother fly with this huge baby? It's very, very difficult. Uh, smallest mammal in the world is a bumblebee bat. It's the size of a bumblebee. You find them in the small region in Thailand and Myanmar up around straddling the River Kwai. Uh, they're again extraordinary individuals living right at the edge of metabolic existence. Imagine being so small but perfectly functional. And again, they use ec- the again the majority of bats use laryngeal echolocation, so they use, make sound in their larynx. They emit it to their nose or to their mouth. They wait for the echoes to come back so they can orient in complete darkness. Um, and then you have one family of bats, which are these uh, strict fruit feeders. These are the um, Great, uh, the the uh, old world fruit bats. These are the bats you find in Australia. You used to find in the botanic gardens in Sydney. Interesting. Thank you so much. So my next question, again, comparing between bats and human, is uh, age related diseases. Yeah. When you study them, do you see that? Uh, can you uh, identify just by looking at a I don't know a forty years old bat, as you said, that the air of the bat is. Uh, Gray, or you cannot, or you do they develop any other age related diseases that similar to what we see yeah. in humans? This is a really excellent question. And people always ask me, are there any signs of senescence in bats? So let's think what it means. So, senescence. So, as once argued that menopause is a type of senescence, the longest of species of bats that keep having their babies year after year after year, there seems to be no age related decline in fertility. When we are catching these bats, we started a long-term micro capture project in Brittany, in France, uh, in collaboration with Brittany Vivant, this grassroots conservation organization. And we have been catching the longest-lived genera of bats and catching them year after year after year. This project's gone on now for over a decade. And we know the ages of the individuals that we caught because we have little microchips in them so we can scan. And I read all the books saying, there's negligible senescence in bats. And I thought, ah, now, come on, is this really real? And it still completely intrigues me because we'll catch a bat, we'll take it out of the bat with your gloves on, all proper um, ways of handling the bat's proper equipment, and you look at it. And all the teeth are broken and it looks a bit tired. And you realize, well, that individual's only one. It's a silly bat that's been trying to eat stones rather than its prey which are these carbon beetles. So, you know, I don't know how well that individual is going to do. And then you look at this pristine, beautiful sable fur, big bat. You know, she's had her 10th baby that we've recorded. And this bat's over 10, over 12, over 13. And so you don't necessarily see that age-related decline that you could with a dog or a cat. We haven't seen it yet. And even in the, uh, the, the greater horseshoe bat colony that Roger Ransom's been studying. So he knows these are the 30-year-old individuals. He can look at these females and he hasn't recorded a sign of gray hair and so forth. But you've asked the question is, can you see any age-related diseases? So I suppose the question is, what would you expect to see in these bats? Do you see tumors? Vera Gorbanova said, maybe the tumors are so small, you can't see them in the bats. We don't see any visible signs of the tumors. And when we are, we're also doing this long-term transcriptomic analysis of all of the genes are expressed in bats and how it changes with age. 
we look at disease level. And again, we don't see any change. So once the bat hits two, reaches puberty, essentially, there's no change with age. It's stable, completely different to a mouse. So we see all this huge variability across age. So that would tend to suggest that the changes that we're looking at, you don't see. We look at telomeres. They don't shorten with age in bats. So, but whether or not they can have rheumatoid arthritis, you know, we don't have a way to look at that apart from inflammatory cytokines in the bloods that we don't see. Um, what happens to us when we age? We lose our hearing. For sure, a bat can't survive without hearing because it needs ears to get around, to fly at night and to find food. If individuals are living that long, that small, they maybe have found ways to be able to deal with that. So it's a very good question. And maybe we need to, some, some of the, the research we're now starting to get involved in is to try and say, right, what does, what is the overall biochemical parameters in bat blood that indicates a healthy individual? So working with the brilliant Frederick Tuzelan, who is the wild, mad French vet that really was the reason why the Merkel Capture Project uh, started up. Uh, he's now, um, he's doing um, a postdoc. He's working in Glasgow and with UCD. And what he's trying to do is establish the baselines for healthy backs. So we can answer that question. Do they have more hemocrit, less hemocrit? What's going on? So we're working on it. But so far, the evidence that we've looked at in the wild is no, they don't. Now, there's other um, studies done on maybe fruit bats in captivity and that you can see signs of aging. And that you may see change. But I want to also argue that I worry that our, our, our husbandry, our ability to keep these species in captivity isn't optimal. They're not fed the optimal food. They don't get the exercise required. And they're living in a very, very different environment. Indeed, some of the longest lived species we cannot keep in captivity because they just don't do well. They can't survive. So potentially key to them surviving is to be in the right environment, right food, right amount of exercise, and then they can do well. Excellent. So, so you, you spoke a bit about how you study them in the wild and in the lab. Maybe yes. we should uh, zoom in on that because it's interesting, at least for me and I assume for everyone. How do you study them? You, you mentioned you have some microchip, I assume that you injected right. into them or about them in the wild, but uh, in the lab, it's hard for me to see. I know how to grow uh, mice in the lab in the cages, but what do you do, <laughs> do you do with the uh, bats in the lab? How do you grow them? So I do not have a captive colony of bats in my lab because the bats I study are the really long-lived insectivorous bats. And they're the ones that hold the secret to extended health spans, and they're the ones that we can't keep in the lab. So that's, that's a problem. Um, but you can keep the fruit-feeding bats in the lab. And so what you do, so um, LymphoWag has been involved in doing this, again, looking at bats in response. So you can keep Eonycterspelia, for example, a nectar-feeding bat, because you can feed them nectar and fruit. Um, you can keep Phyllostomus discolor, which is a, a bat that Sonny Burns keeps in the lab. So you, what you have in a lab, you would have an aviary, basically, with a bat's put in there, and they would be fed fruit like they would in a zoo, at Copenhagen Zoo has a fantastic colony of Rosetta's fruit bats, actually. So you need a setup like that. Um, if you want to keep them and study them, you have to be able to catch them and work with them. Um, in the field, what we do, again, the reason why we go back and sample this colony year after year after year is that the entire colony, with all females, 
come back to the same place every year to have their babies. They come back to these beautiful churches in Brittany and France. And this way, we're able to recatch all of them every year, including all the new babies. Sometimes we catch the dads if they're hanging around as well, and we put samples. And so what you do is you, 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 they fly out at night. I mean, you can see them all peering out just when it becomes dusk. And we put up these modified harp traps and the bats fly. And we've had to use this um, acoustic cloaking devices. I have a husband who's a physicist who helps us work out what to do with the structure of the trap so the bats can't actually hear it. And they fly out and we catch them and they go down these long socks into these boxes. And we work with all trained field biologists and vets. And we catch the bat, we measure them, we open up to the wingspan, weigh them, look at the overall health, the condition of the bat, put in a little, inject a little microchip like you would into a kitten. Um, we then take blood from the vein at the ankle of the bat. Just a little bit of blood, no more than 140 microliters. And we'll take a wing punch because our wings regenerate, which is something very interesting. They, they can re regenerate their wing tissue quite readily. So we can take a wing punch, we flash freeze it, we feed the bat, and we release them. And we do this every single year. But in the lab, what we've done, so it's hard to keep bats in the lab because they also live for a long time. Um, you can't keep vampire bats. They're also easier to keep in the lab because they feed on blood. But again, you'd have to have a captive. Uh, you'd have to have a decent place to put them. The, what I do in my lab, though, is we've been taking wing punches. So we take three millimeters of wing membrane and we put it into viable media. We're able to, we have developed all the cell culture. We have multiple primary cell cultures, secondary cell cultures. We're now working on iPSCs, so rejuvenated, reprogrammed bat cells, so that we can actually test some of our functional predictions. Some of our wildlife long-term fertility predictions now in these new cellular systems to see what is different to bat cells than to human cells than to my cells. What can we actually see? So I guess for me, my bat in a lab is my bat in a Petri dish, based in a wing. Excellent. And a, a follow-up question about the longevity. So we know that in many organisms, females live longer than males. Yeah. Does it uh, still uh, stand in bats or we don't know yet? So my understanding from looking at the horseshoe bats is the males and females are living the same length of time. Uh, this individual that holds longevity in the myotis brantii was a male. So in some of the Vespertidiana bats, sometimes they can be male. So it just depends on the study. And I think this is because it depends on how we're recapturing them. So we capture at a maternity colony, because that's the easiest place for us to catch them every single year. So that's where you majority you have females. But what we've been trying to do is to be able to track the males. It's very hard to catch them because they go to different places. We see whether or not they're genotype. So are they still leaving offspring? And what you can do is because we genotype all of the babies, we say, right, that male's still alive, that male's still alive, and so forth. Right now, we're not seeing an age-related difference, but we'll have to look more closely at that. Okay, thank you for that. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring 
to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. As you mentioned before, and as we know, bats know to fly. And most of the mammals don't fly, especially humans. Not <laughs> yet, can, let's say. We can fly. We get in an airplane, a helicopter. Yeah, we, 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 can buy, we can buy a ticket for an airplane, yeah. So can you elaborate a bit about the modification? evolutionary modification that Bart had to acquire in order to start flying. And what is your guess? Why have they decided? Or why, why bats are flying? What, what is the advantage that escape? Oh, this is a fundamental question in all of evolutionary biology, which means it's going to be very hard to answer. So okay. this is something that I was, first of all, you had to ask, where did bats fall in the mammal tree of life? So what is the closest group of animals? What's a sister taxa to bats? So what do you think they are? I, uh, I think that they are similar to baby mice. Yeah, you see, this is it. Because the French word is chauve which means bald mice. Fleeter mice, yes. which means flying mice. But bats are not remotely related to mice or to rodents. We're more related to mice and rodents than, than bats are. So this was always the assumption that, so the assumption was that bats we're in a, a group called Arconta, along with humans, tree shrews, flying lemurs. Um, but when we did pathologic trees based on genes, we found that bats were grouping in this new subordinal group of mammals that we call Eurasiatheria, along with horses and cows and carnivores and pangolins and whales. So they grouped, so they're grouping in this clade. And this clade is quite interesting because if you think about this clade, Many of mammal species, very modified forelimbs, hands that are wings, yeah, modified law limbs become flippers, hooves, and so forth. They're all found within this group. I think a, a, a name that was being toyed around when all of the phylogenesis were named this day was Variamania, modified hands. So we, I've spent, I spent 25 years trying to work out the um, evolutionary tree of life and where did bats go. And we published the first pilot study from Bat1K, six reference quality genomes, all analyzed using state-of-the-art phylogenomic methods. And what we found is that bats group in this order, and the first branch down are the true insectivores. So you have hedgehogs and shrews. Next branch down is bats. And then you have the, all the Laurasian Therian orders, the carnivores, the pangolins, the horses, the whales group up there. And so they don't, so, so the assumption before, before we had molecular phylogenetics and new ways of making trees was that bats and flying lemurs were sister taxes. And that what had happened was obviously the flying lemur was the intermediate form that must have had these kind of gliding membranes and then bats developed wings. That's not the case. So the case is when you actually look at the fossil record, all of a sudden, bang smack at about 55 million years of age, you find beautiful Lagerstätten bat fossils, perfectly formed bing, fingers that look like wings. And bats could echolocate because they had these very curly, cocky, perfectly formed fossils. Um, 
And that doesn't really help us because it doesn't tell us the transition of what happened. And so it's still a conundrum of exactly what were the transition stages that led to bats being able to fly. So when you look at the most primitive of the bat fossils, um, what you might find, like on a, on a conictorous index, for example, um, you may find that there looks like there's kind of claws at the ends of these, these wings, tips of the fingers. This baby meant that the ancestral bat was able to crawl up trees. But how did wings evolve? So how did this whole idea of lengthening of fingers, growing of membranes, modification of inner ears, how did flight evolve? And did flight and echolocation evolve at the same time? And where did nocturnality all evolve? So these are all questions that we're still ask asking. What would I, as in off the record, <laughs> without any scientific backup, really? So I presume there had to be a species that was crawling up trees. And somehow, for some reason, this ability to grow this membrane became advantageous, maybe as they were falling. And that I still wonder about, can we go and look at genomes to be able to segregate out the steps of development? Fossils would be much easier. We couldn't find a fossil that was slightly growing, starting to grow a bit of long fingers. Maybe slightly the ear, ears were changing shape. We could differentiate between them too. But right now we'll have to look at genomes and see what we can do. And also couple this work with the fossil exports like Nancy Simmons in the Natural History Museum in New York is finding these new fossils all the time. But potentially this is what happened. So between 80 million years to 65 million years. So when bats diverged off from the other Laurasian mammals and then when modern bats evolved very quickly, these things changed. So at 65 million years, this is when the meteorite hit the earth and the dinosaurs went extinct. You find a huge radiation of our modern bat families. So very quickly things start to change. Now I will argue from a lot of my research, I argue that echolocation, so we're going to assume flight has evolved. Echolocation then became evolved and the majority of the echolocating lineages, they started to modify and change their echolocation to allow them exist in different niches. And what's very interesting, the four superordinal or the, the, the four superordinal groups of bats all pretty much radiated around the same time according to molecular data. And this corresponded with this huge rise in global temperatures, increase in insect diversity. And it looked like bats were responding to climate change. Um, and they became very, very successful. That is what I think must have happened. Uh, the nocturnality, were they nocturnal to start off with? Did they, were they able to deal with this long-term night that must have happened when the dinosaurs all went extinct? Potentially. But these are, these are questions that I am deeply, deeply interested in. I'm hoping that all of our new genomes that we're publishing with Bat1K will give us some better insight. Excellent. And a few questions now about, uh, I'm trying to understand why bats live longer. So one question is, is it because they are flying? So you mentioned that uh, they are flying lemurs. Are yes. they also living, uh, live longer or uh, they are not? Um, flying lemurs don't fly. Flying lemurs fall. So the only mammals that can actually fly are bats. Flying lemurs just glide. They fall down and their membranes stop them hitting the ground. They parachute. Um, 
so flight itself is really, really highly, highly metabolically costly. Um, so indeed, if you think about it, I think bats will expend 30 fold, 30 to 300 fold more times oxygen consumption and energy consumption or energy creation and consumption due to flight alone than a similar size mammal. So, actually, let me reset it again. They'll expend three times more energy over the course of their lifespan than a similar sized mammal given flight alone. And their oxygen consumption during flight can be 30 to 300 fold higher than mammals that are the same size just walking about. So it's extremely costly and highly costly to fly. So bats have had to evolve ways to be able to deal with this deleterious effects of flight. And these huge bursts of flight, this really, really high temperatures, um, huge mass production. So they've had to evolve ways to deal with this constant deleterious effects of their forms of locomotion. Now, I'm going to argue that what this drove was their evolution of their longevity and also their ability to deal with viruses, but that this happened as a side effect of having to be able to deal with this metabolic requirements of flight. So let's imagine flight, and again, not everybody agrees with me on this one, Um. And it's going to be a hard thing to test because the only other flying group we have are the birds. They show similar similarities. But let's assume flight, so very, very highly metabolically costly. Uh, flight will, all the free radicals are produced. They break up the DNA. They cause constant sterile inflammation. They excite the immune response. So what the pre-bat, the ancestral bat, had to evolve to be able to deal with this was ways to fix and repair damage. Damage repair. Repair damage to your DNA. Repair, remove damage to your cells. Remove protein aggregation. So potentially bats evolved really excellent ways of dealing with damage. Damage resistance and damage tolerance. We've been looking at ways that they might be doing this. But then also at the same time, you need to make sure that the immune response, this constant sterile inflammation didn't get out of control. Um, one thing that's very interesting when you look at bat genomes, and this was first published by Lympha Wang's group from Singapore, was that bats are missing their entire family of these pyogen genes. So these are genes required to make an inflammasome. Every other mammalian order has them. Not a single bat has a functional. So it was lost in the ancestor of bats, potentially associated with the acquisition of flight. So that meant that there's this real modification of their innate immune response. But then you go and you look at the changes that happen and you look at how bats respond to pathogens. Um, they have a very different way of responding to pathogens. They have this very strong antiviral response that's dampened by an equally aggressive anti-inflammatory response. And so they seem to evolve ways of staying in homeostasis. Potentially they've had to evolve these ways of staying in homeostasis because of these deleterious effects of flight. Now, what that meant was that bats respond to their pathogens the same way they respond to their constant sterile inflammation by dampening it so they could live with all these viruses without getting sick. What makes you sick from infection is this out-of-control immune response. You have to be able to control the pathogen, but you then have to also be able to control your own immune response. And the other side effect of being able to repair all of this damage and also being able to control immune response is extended health spans. 
you don't age. Those hallmarks of aging are all slowed down. So maybe the acquisition of flight drove these unique adaptations in bats, the ability to deal with damage, the ability to deal with the ability to not get disease from infection, which meant they have these longer, longer health spans. It's the side effect of acquiring flight. Now, what also happened then when you acquire flight was that bats didn't experience the same amount of predation and that rather than having 10, 15 babies, and you couldn't do that when you're flying, they can only have one. So again, this is the whole disposable soma theory. What's going on? So all of these different evolutionary pressures, I think, have led to bats being these extraordinary species that can deal with damage and deal with disease. Okay, thank you so much for uh, this explanation. And I assume because, as you said, they need to produce much more uh, energy or consume much more energy in order to fly, I assume that they have a higher amount of uh, mitochondria. And if they have a higher amount of mitochondria, they produce more DNA damage, I assume. Yeah. So do you see in uh, your molecular study any evidence that they have uh, anti DNA damage uh, enzymes such as uh, SOD or other that they basically help the bat to fight all the DNA damage that the mitochondria uh, produce? So what we find when we're looking at, so you look at the, the amount of the free radicals that a bat produce, and then you look at the production of the um, anti-free radicals, the response to that. And they have a very high... Um, Free radicals and loads of ways of dealing with the free radicals. Again, they're high production. What we find when we, we look at the idea of DNA repairs, its ability to repair. So we looked at, at mitochondria. Now, now, whether or not bats have loads more mitochondria in their cells or not, I actually don't know that answer yet. Um, what I do know, though, is that we looked at the level of damage you would expect to see in bat mitochondria, given their high, high metabolic rate and their high production of ROS. So we looked for the level of oxidative damage by sequencing the entire population of cells in young, uh, sequencing the entire population of mitochondria in bat cells. So we took um, bat wings, extracted the DNA, uh, developed this new way of looking at all the whole entire, sequencing the whole entire population of uh, the mitochondria and looked at how it changed in young, middle-aged and older bat. And what we found is that they did not show that level of oxidative damage that would have been um, predicted given the high levels of ROS that we had shown they do produce. In the wild, we've taken blood and yes, ROS is to the roof. Um, Absents are also to the roof, so they're able to get the two balances right. Now, what that meant was that they must have ways of either not experiencing the damage from all that ROS, maybe all those antioxidants, or finding ways of repairing the damage. And so we then looked at genes that are evolving differently in bats to other mammals. We found selection involved in protector mito, mitophagy pathways, the ability to remove the damage. And we also found a lot of selection in DNA repair genes. So not just for mitochondria, overall DNA repair genes. This was something that we found also when we went and looked at the blood transcript dump and how it changed in young, middle-aged, and older bats. What we found was that there was this huge, huge, huge increase in age of DNA repair. Bats' ability to repair their DNA went up. Ours goes down. 
So somehow they've evolved ways of dealing with this damage. We have a whole bunch of genes that we think are, dri- are, are driving this. So a lot of these DNA repair pathways and also their bats seem to be able to regulate their cellular division without getting cancer. So I think this is exquisite control over DNA replication and DNA repair that seems to be occurring in these bat genomes. And potentially it's evolved as a way to deal with damage that they must experience due to flight. At least that's a hypothesis. So the answer is that, yes, I think repair is very, very key. We don't see the damage to the mitochondria as would be expected. And we are now moving into really doing a lot more functional assays of our mitochondria or about mitochondria. See what's going on. How are they doing it? Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, at least uh, some species of uh, bats are hibernate and uh, basically decrease their metabolic uh, activity during the winter. And I'm wondering if you or anyone else done the experiment of measuring their epigenetic uh, age before and after and whether you see uh, any effect on uh, on that or that's an experiment that haven't been done. No, it's a brilliant question. What we did is we looked at telomeres. So we have a paper that's hopefully going to come out, hopefully going to be accept, uh, uh, um, accepted by the brilliant Megan Parrow, who she was a PhD student in my lab. And what we found, we took telomeres seemed to increase in length um, before and after hibernation. And this is in one species of long-lived hibernating bat. But then there was another, another study that came out here in the US um, or in the US I don't even know where I am right now. I'm in Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. Where they looked at Tescus Puscus and showed that there was a slowing down of this uh, epigenetic aging during hibernation. So hibernation seems to have some type of rejuvenation, at least of what we're looking at. And so the question is, what's going on? So yes, the metabolism completely slows down. But then how are these telomeres extending? You know, something is switched on. Something mm-hmm. is being repaired. What's very interesting, hibernation is also the immune system completely shuts down. Um, now, it can be bad for certain species of bats. So in the U.S., there's uh, many of these temperate cave-dwelling species are, are, are dying of white-nose syndrome. So a fungus that lives in the skin that somehow attacks, that, that grows on the bats while they're hibernating. It grows preferentially between 4 and 14 degrees, not like a typical fungus that likes warm, moist places. And the bats wake up really, really skinny and they die. And the question is, what's going on? There's these, you know, we could do some nice phylogenetic and, and comparative studies to try and understand this a bit better. Thankfully, I think not all species are equally affected in the US. So the mass, mass population species level die off isn't happening. But what goes on in hibernation? How does this actually happen? And I just think this is, we need to start thinking a little bit more about this rejuvenating power of hibernation done through bats. Can we do it as humans? Let's work out what they're doing. Yeah. No, that's a great uh, also segue to the bats and immune system. And we we heard a lot about bats during the COVID-19. And the, there are a lot of hypotheses. I'm not sure if it's true or not that uh, actually COVID-19 or the coronavirus uh, family of uh, viruses specifically came from bats and the uh, can you maybe elaborate a bit about that and uh, your hypothesis, why bats have so many viruses and uh, why are they uh, immune for them and they are a good uh, carrier uh, for uh, or a good reservoir for viruses that uh, later on will attack different species? Yeah, it's a great question. 
I think COVID-19 really put bats on the, on the world. Everyone started thinking about them and, and, not, and it's really driven a lot more research into bat genomics. Some bad things too, because everyone's quite scared of them, caused a stop in, in, in studies on bats. But now people are starting to do it again. So I, I'll tell you my, my understanding, uh, my understanding of, of all the literature that came out and um, my work with a lot of bat researchers who were involved in this. So if you think about it, one in five of every living mammal species is a bat. And viruses evolved to be able to exist with their host. And so because there's more bats, of course, there should be more bat viruses. Indeed, rodents are the most species order of mammals. And yes, they have the highest diversity of all viruses, the highest number of different types of viruses. So people argue, well, are bats really special? You know, are they really, really unique? What is unique for bats for sure is that they have been shown to have the highest diversity of coronaviruses. So coronaviruses, the cybercovirus family, you'll find many, many, many different diversities all within bats. Now, this suggests that bats will evolve ways to be able to coexist with these particular type of viruses. Um, the thing about the cybercoviruses is that if you look at SARS-CoV-2, if you look at any SARS or MERS, these are viruses that recombine. These are viruses that are made for zoonotic, for zoonosis, for hopping between species. If you just look at the spike protein and you look at the entry ACE2, which is the receptor that spike 2 binds to to get into human cells, to get into most mammal cells. And you look at genomes, it is the most conserved, one of the most conserved of all proteins, which, of course, if the virus is using that to get into mammal cells to replicate, it can, it's very, very, very um, fickle. It can hop between species. What's really interesting in bats that people don't actually know is that the ACE2 receptor in bats is unbelievably diverse. And that SARS-CoV-2 cannot get into the majority of bats we've looked at using the ACE2 receptor. You need to, to make SARS-CoV-2 get a bat cell, you have to make it express a human ACE2. So SARS-CoV-2 is now a human virus and was a human virus um, in the early 20, in, in 2020. What is true, though, is that when you look at all the ancestor ancestral viruses to SARS-CoV-2, you find them in wild horseshoe bats. So this is where you do find the ancestors. You don't find SARS-CoV-2, but you find all of these ancestors. And part of the puzzle was, right, okay, you've got all of these bat viruses, and the spike protein in these bat viruses can bind to humans, and the human virus can't bind to bats, so how is it possible for this to happen? There was a paper that came out last year uh, from these researchers in the Pasteur Institute where they'd been sampling wild horseshoe bats in Laos in Southeast Asia. And they had been sampling them all and they actually found a new SARS-CoV-2 ancestral virus circulating in wild horseshoe bats that could bind human ACE2 better than actually SARS-CoV-2 could. So Potentially, it can come from there. And so, and then a lot of the research that's now being done, whereby they've gone and looked at, well, where did it come from in Wuhan at the time? Was it from a lab? Or was it from a wild bat mm -hmm. virus that somehow got into humans 
Um, and they've done some of this other work that's published now by Eddie Holmes Group, uh, whereby they did a whole metagenomic analysis of, or, or analyzed metagenomic data taken from the samples around Wuhan from 2020. And again, found this huge correlation between these things called raccoon dogs. And you find lots of raccoon dog metagenomic data and SARS-CoV-2 data together. So potentially what could have, could have happened is that a virus got from these wild bats into these farmed carnivores in China, into these wet markets, whereby the perfect, perfect breeding ground for zoonotic viruses that like to hop between species. Lots of other studies have come out to show that this type of farming, these type of wet markets, just it, it's, it's a hot zone. This is what's going to happen. So when you look at all the genomes, it suggests all evidence points to the fact that this came from somehow from the wild. The bats were involved, but the question is when. There's 70 to 100 years missing data. If you look at molecular clocks, we need to find the answer. But we do need to find the answer. We need to, we need to try and analyze a lot of other data to see, well, to stop it ever happening again. Um, what is very interesting about all of this, again, if you think about MERS, SARS-CoV-1, the ancestors were bats. These viruses got into another species, potentially civet cats, camels. Humans had a lot more interaction with those species, and then it gets into the human population. So I think zoonotic events happen way more than we think. And if you speak to any of the virologists, you know they're going to tell you this. The question is, well, then, why bats? How are they useful? Why are they carrying all these viruses? How, what's going on? So people were really, really freaked out, and they tried to infect bats and make them all sick with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and they found that actually... You can infect the bats, these Rosettus bats, but they don't actually get sick. They don't necessarily replicate, they don't get sick. It's very difficult to make them replicate in the cells. Indeed, other diseases like Marburg, potentially Ebola, um, you can't make the bat cells sick. Rabies, bats could be immune, maybe not immune, depends on the inoculation of what's going on. So bats seem to evolve unique ways of, of dealing with viruses. And that I think that rather we need to look to these reservoirs, potential reservoirs that don't get sick and work at what they're doing. And this comes back to flight. So the idea that flight has driven this modification of this innate immune system. So that flight has, they've lost these inflammatory, inflammasome genes. They have evolved a unique way of dealing with inflammation. But bats are about to counter this by also evolving this extreme interferon response. So when you look at bat genomes, you'll see this expansion of these apobec genes, these antiviral genes, which means they're mounting in a very aggressive antiviral response on initial infection. They also have interferon switched on all the time. If we had that level of interferon switched on, this is what happens in some type of autoimmune diseases. So again, bats have them switched on all the time, which means they can regulate and control these viruses. But what they can also do then is control their own immune response. So they match like for like. So it appears that when bats are infected with the viruses, they are able to 
control the pathogen with their immune response and then control their immune response. So what this means is that they've evolved ways that they can live with these viruses. It's been argued that this selective pressure put on these viruses by, by bats that can stay in the cells, they're constantly being um, under attack, may drive the evolution of the viruses within bats. Maybe it, it's a, a selective pressure. It's a hypothesis nobody actually knows. But what I see that's very intriguing is that rather than create a vaccine, well, we need vaccines. That's why we're here now. That's why we can even talk. But we will be faced with another zoonotic disease. Think where this flu came. Think where HIV comes from. This is just the way the world works. If we use bats, find out how bats can deal with these pathogens in this way. We can find ways that we could drug ourselves. So, for example, be given the right amount of antivirals, huge amount, at the right time, and then learning to switch that response off by stimulating your own IL-10, for example. So I think studying how disease progresses in bats is a really, really important insight into new therapeutics that we can use to help us fight any type of disease. To fight sepsis, for example. What, is, what do we need to do to try and work with that? And I think the answer does lie in bats. But also this helps us think about aging and the immune response. Um, bats potentially have found a way to dampen their inflammation-driven aging. And that, you know, what is the, is, what is the biggest driver of aging? Is it inflammation? I know a lot of the immunologists say absolutely yes. And if you're looking more and more at a lot of these results, I would say yes. You know, are bats using their immune response to regulate tumors? What are they doing? There's something really intriguing in bats' immune response. Um, now the other thing that you asked, how are they able to deal with all this viruses? Well, this is something that we're, we're quite excited about. And working with the brilliant Thomas Vaca and, and Marion Desauget, these are guys from Mount Sinai. And so they were regenerative stem cell biologists. And they were really, really trying to find ways to deal with SARS-CoV-2. And Thomas, he wanted to make um, lung cells from bats that don't get sick and was able to get a horseshoe bat flown from Spain to New York in the middle of the pandemic. This bat that was sacrificed, she was pregnant, which is good because that meant they had access to embryonic cells. And they decided they were just going to use the Yamiaka transcription factors, reprogram this and turn, turn these cells into to horseshoe bat lung cells. So it wasn't simple at all because the Yamiaka factors, transcription factors do not work on bats. So Marianne and Thomas had to go and find a new recipe and worked very hard. And I think it was just because they had such a wonderful experience. They were able to rejuvenate and regenerate so I reprogram bat stem cells. And when they did this, they found extraordinary things. When you reprogram bat stem cells, you waken up all of the integrated viruses and they are really overexpressed, so much more so than any other mammals that we have on record. So it nearly looks like bats seem to be cultivating a proviral environment right at the very, very first progenitor cell. Is this a form of, a, uh, of inoculation? Is it a form of, of training? What's going on? And so we're now moving into this area of 
be able to look at the viruses that are integrated into the bat genomes, seeing what have they experienced before, and then seeing really and truly what is the benefit for doing this. So this is kind of some new crazy science we're finding in bats. That, that was great because you summarized the immune response of the bats and the viruses and longevity in the in one uh, way, which which was uh, really fascinating for me. So I would like uh, to wrap up our discussion with a question that uh, we usually ask all of our guests, and it's uh, what is your uh, top tip uh, for improving health span? And for you specifically, maybe it can come from bats. So what uh, would you recommend someone to do based on all the information that you know about bats and why and the reason that they are living so long? That's a brilliant question. I think I was, I've, I've focused so many things. If I had to do just one thing, what would it be? I'd probably say starve. <laughs> I think that's probably what is a good thing to do. So if you think about it, they go into these long tranches of hibernation. They get really, 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 very, very fat before hibernation. And then really, 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 really slim. Um, really, really, really slim afterwards. What would I think would be the best thing to do? I think you need to sort out your immune response. I think you need to for you need to somehow dampen inflammation. That's what I think. I think you need to find ways that you can stimulate your innate immune response so that you are that you are, are dealing with less and less inflammation. Is it through exercise? Is it through food? Um, is it through drugs that maybe you're going to take that are going to modify this response? Uh, I'd also say you need to repair your DNA. Now, let's we would think way into the future. What could we actually do? The other thing that we have been finding is that actually the thing that seems to be driving these responses in bats, uh, it's RNA regulation. So it's microRNAs. Potentially, there's a microRNA that controls all of these different pathways. If we could find that microRNA or a little drug that could somehow cause us to have those same responses, I'd say do that. So potentially finding ways to stimulate the innate immune response, not to get so excited, but to have that balance just right. And finding ways to be able to repair and remove your damage. But that's not what everybody says. <laughs> Don't no, get damaged, repair yourself, and try to do something else. I also like the point that you raise about uh, microRNA and maybe there is a, maybe the bat has the fun, fountain of use that we haven't uh, found yet. So I think that it's a great way to finish our discussion today, Emma. And uh, I think that we are coming to on uh, uh, our time. So thank you so much, uh, Emma. And uh, I look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month uh, with you and the leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.instantracker.com slash podcast. Again, thank you so much, uh, Emma. And uh, it was a real pleasure to discuss a lesson from a, a creature that is a bit scary to most of us, but actually there are a lot of information there about uh, hopefully longevity, but also how can we uh, face another uh, pandemic in the future and how can we get ready for that? So I think that uh, it's really relevant to understand the bugs better and the uh, I think that the scientists like you are doing a great job of uh, exposing all the information or a lot of information that we can learn about that. So again, thank you so much. Thank you so and much. And it was a pleasure. Pleasure Excellent. is mine. 
Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.